but boy, when you start attacking the basic tenant of spur length and age, you you can get some people absolutely furious um, that I know are mild mannered people. In fact, I have a friend who is about the most calm, laid back person I know, and I can I can get him so angry bringing this subject up that he will he will be unable to speak to me. <laughs> Welcome to the DSD Podcast, and I am your host, Dave Smith, with my esteemed partner, Brad Cochran. Uh, good morning, Brad. Good morning, Dave. Uh, and today we are super excited because we have an awesome guest, and it's uh, Brad and I are both really nervous because, you know, as you, as you know, Brad and I barely share a brain, and we have a guest who ha- uh, is extremely intimidating because he's just so smart and so awesome, um, and we're going to... We're going to try to squeeze some great information out of him, even though uh, we're really not that smart, and he really is. So this is Dr. Michael Chamberlain. He needs no uh, introduction. Everybody knows who he is. He's the, he is the, the world's most awesome uh, biologist, um, ecologist. Uh, he's a professor at the University of Georgia and an uh, all-around great guy, and uh, we're, we're happy to have him today. Welcome, Mike, Dr. Michael Chamberlain. You can call me Mike. It's uh, it's good to be with you. I was sitting here wondering when you was talking about this smart guy. I was like, who the hell's who the hell's he talking about? Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like who who are they talking about? Hey, Mike, thanks for joining us. Not a problem. Not a problem. Glad to join you. Boy, do I have a lot of questions for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we both do. And you know, one thing is, Mike, we we realize that you have been doing tons of podcasts and you're in super high demand and everything, and you probably get bored talking about the same things over and over again. So we also want to make sure that uh, that we 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 want to find out what you know the kind of things that you like. We know that you're not uh, you're not just into uh, birds and you, you do lots, lots of, uh, lots of field work with mammals and stuff. And, you know, if, I guess the first thing that, that I'd like to ask you is like, what, you know, what, what, what kind of stuff do you, do you really like? What are you really interested in? And what, what kind of stuff would you like to talk about? That's a little more exciting than talking about the same thing that you talk about over and over again, even though we want to get to some of that. Man, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm always willing to talk about pretty much pretty much anything um gosh as far as what i what i like to talk about my my wife would say oh jesus here he goes is hunting man <laughs> it's, right it's like everything that comes up is like uh me and my son we're, we talk about hunting and me and my daughter we we talk about hunting and that's that's pretty much my only hobby uh, that's great i can certainly relate to that that's awesome <laughs> i love it yeah, I'm not not a golfer, not a tennis player, or anything like that. My my hobby is hunt whatever I can hunt, and if I'm not hunting, I'm on a tractor or piddling around outside doing doing something. So yeah, that's that's pretty much my life's confined to to working, which I enjoy, and trying to get out and hunt as much as I can. And are you are you heavily into deer hunting just as much as turkey hunting? Yeah. I'm a fanatical deer hunter. In fact, I, I probably, for the opportunities that we have out there, I probably deer hunt more, more than I turkey hunt, honestly, which mm-hmm. my, well, how I'm not divorced, I, I honestly <laughs> don't know, but, 
but uh yeah i love i love to deer hunt i love to hunt anything guys i if it's in season if it's if you know if i can pick up a firearm and go afield and spend some time outside or pick up a fishing rod I, that's that's me man i anything i can do to be outside and be around wildlife that's that's fun and right mike do you do most of your hunting back home in georgia uh no not really um i've got a camp in louisiana that i have been a part of for many years i i actually lived there for 11 years and and taught at louisiana state university before i, I came to georgia so i still have really close you know lifelong friends that that live there and i, I still go over there and, and hunt a lot um I, I do hunt here in georgia quite a bit but but i'm i'm a traveling guy man i, I love i love to go different places I, I love to go visit new people and see different landscapes and so i'm usually you know i'm usually on the back 40 quite a bit but i'm also the guy that's going to book a trip somewhere every year even if it's just for a long weekend or something just to just to get away from from home and you know see some different places have you um any idea how many different different states you've hunted at this point mm, i have no clue <laughs> uh, <laughs> it I sounds really like don't. it's quite a few yeah i mean i've been a bunch of places but but i've all i've done a lot of hunting overseas too i i like going and seeing you know unique areas and interacting with people that think differently than i do and and uh I, th I think that there's a lot of value in that you get different perspectives you know and so i so yeah i, I travel not only in the u.s but as much as i can within reason you know out of the country of course that's been that's been screwed up <laughs> the yeah. past year or so but uh but hopefully in the next few months we can we can get back overseas i've, I've got some a trip plan i just i just hope it doesn't get canceled so are, are you talk, have you been to africa or when you say overseas like are you talking europe or africa or i've been to africa a number of times yeah okay yeah i've been i've hunted in new zealand i've hunted in various countries in southern africa i have not hunted in europe um that's actually that's i'm, I'm hoping to do some of that you know within financial restrictions obviously but we're kind of waiting on our, our kids to, to finish up with school and move about, you know, on their own. And then my wife and I can travel a little bit. She's not a hunter, so she's more of a sleep late, drink good coffee and, you know, find good restaurants to eat in. So, so we, we'll, we'll have some challenges to, to reconcile those, those two things, but, but haven't done Europe yet, but I've, I've hunted a lot of other places. I've spent a lot of time in Canada. I love, love going to Canada regardless of what I'm hunting. I, I just love being up there. So, so yeah. Nice. And, uh, on your, your field, your field work, what, what has most of your field work been, been involved with? I mean, um, is it mam mostly mammals or mostly turkeys or, or what, what kind of stuff have you done? I've, I've studied a lot of different things. It really kind of changed as my career progressed. So, when I got out of grad school and first stepped into an academic job, I did what a lot of people like me do. I just studied whatever there was money to study because you, you're working really hard to try to, to get promotion and to get tenure and to get some job security and make your name. And, and that take, that's, that's a really stressful process. And so I, 
I basically studied, if, if you go back and look at stuff I published from the, say, 2000 to 2010, it was, hell, it was all over the place. I, I studied wolves, I studied bears, coyotes, deer, red cockaded woodpeckers, ducks. I mean, you literally, you know, it was a smorgasbord of stuff. But within the past 10 years or so, I've I've really kind of narrowed down to a lot of my work has either been on turkeys or it's been on um, red wolves, coyotes, bears. I've, I haven't done as the type of work that I did, say, the decade prior when it comes to just kind of spreading your wings and studying everything you can you can study. I've tried to specialize a little more and and really now outside of some work I have I have one huge deer study that's ongoing. Everything else I do is is all turkey related. Hmm. Which is good. I, I enjoyed that and I'm I'm actually glad that I've been able to specialize on the turkey side of it because that is my my true passion scientifically. So it it's um I guess you could say I'm blessed to be able to do what I do. Right on. Well, that's right. It's, it's good timing too, because the the world needs good, good groundbreaking information right now. And, and that's kind of what you're providing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope so. We, um, we've got some challenges ahead. That's for sure. We, you know, if you, if you keep your finger on the Turkey world pulse, you, there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of discussion. There's, you know, depending on where you are in the country, there's, there's some back and forth and there's some difficult conversations being had amongst not just ourselves as hunters, but, you know, with, with state agencies and among state agencies about, you know, what's the playing field going to look like five years or 10 years down the road. And, and we don't, we don't know, you know, that those answers, but, but we have some work to do. That's for sure. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that we, uh, we just did a podcast last, uh, last week and they, we got, it was a question and answers podcast and Brad and I were mm-hmm. trying to answer some of these questions and, you know, it's like, we were thinking, wait, we, we need Mike Chamberlain to, to answer these. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like there's like one of them right off the bat, if you, if you, do, if you wouldn't mind, I would just love, I would just love to get your take on this because Brad and I, you know, took us, took a stab at it, but we don't, you know, have any, anywhere near your, your knowledge, but, uh, a guy, Jesse Davis, um, he wrote in and he said, uh, give us your opinions on declining turkey populations in the Midwest. And then he said, is it flooding, disease, or predators? Uh, so what? How would, how would you answer that, somebody that actually knows the answers? Um, you, you could probably come up with a list of about 10 different things, and, and all of those things are playing a part to some degree. And that's not... I'm not trying to provide like a, you know, like a, a cop-out type answer, but it, it really does depend on where you are. And you, if you kind of look at the big picture from a, from a turkey management standpoint, you know, you, you have things that are obvious habitat. I mean, just take a, get in a plane and fly over the Midwest and look at the landscape now and compare it to what you saw 30 years ago. And, and you could deduce on your own some of the issues this bird is facing. You know, we're losing hardwood forest. Uh, those forests are being replaced by either agriculture or shorter rotation type, you know, wood fiber type 
forest communities that are that are not designed to provide the same resources that hardwoods do. We've got fragmentation issues all over the United States, more problematic in the Midwest and East. Um, disease issues we don't understand. We, we, we struggle with disease issues, and I'm not a disease ecologist, but I, I lean heavily on friends that are, and there's just so much we don't know about diseases because a diseased bird is often killed by a predator, and we never know they existed. Um, we, we harvest this bird, you know, while it's breeding and we know that harvest matters. Um, I don't know if y'all hear that blimping up in your, your ears, but I hear that on my end. But anyway, um, you name it, we've got all these things that affect this bird and the contribution that say one of those things has in your locale may be different than right across the state line and in some other area or even within your own state. So you may have, for instance, predation issues that are linked to to habitat quality or, or a lack of, of habitat in one county or two counties and then three or four counties away there's a different there's a different thing that that, that may be more impactful than that. Um, and I kind of use the analogy and I've I've said this on other podcasts. People will probably at some point get get tired of hearing it and just say, "Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Mike!" You know. Um, but it's like I kind of look at it like a you know like a coach's perspective. So if you take a you know a coach, he or she watches the game. They don't watch the ball. And we as human beings get we get infatuated with watching the ball. We we watch the ball be snapped. We watch the ball be run or thrown or or whatever, and we fail to look at it from a coach's perspective. But that's the way I, I try, and I fail at this a lot because I'm a human being, but I try to keep the coach's perspective and understand that the end of the game is to win. The outcome is what we're, we're concerned about. I'm, I'm not concerned with how the cornerback is playing this minute. I'm concerned with the fact that that cornerback can't lose us the game. And if the cornerback or the safety or whatever stumbles and, and has some problems, as long as we don't lose the game, that, that we can address those deficiencies moving forward. And if you think about turkey management, and I, I in my opinion, and obviously I'm biased because I'm saying this, but I think if you look at it from that perspective, you realize that that the outcome is what we're after and the contributions to each one of those issues, habitat, predation, disease, harvest, whatever it is, you name it, they're all different across the landscape. And we're going to have to adjust how each one of those positions kind of contributes to the outcome of the game. But the bottom line is we all want the same outcome. We all want the game. We want to win, right? We want, we want turkeys to be sustainable and we want to be able to enjoy them as, as hunters and enthusiasts 20, 30, 50 years from now. Um, and if we don't, it'll be a failure on, on our part. So that's kind of the way I look at it when I get that type of question. You know, what is the smoking gun? Well, there's not a smoking gun. It's, it's all of the things you just mentioned and they all interact and they all do that differently from one year to the next, from one county to the next, from one state to the next. And that, that makes the picture kind of complex, but but 
we have you know we have good minds in the business we can make we can figure out how to write the ship we just uh we need to get busy so um when you talk about harvest like that's one of the things that like jesse hadn't even mentioned in there but um it sounds like reading between the lines are you kind of saying that there's like maybe maybe there's a, a a really good way to manage these populations and manage harvest and everything like that but they're Sometimes it's difficult because of like political pressure as far as like maybe season timing and that sort of thing. <laughs> no, no, you said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm putting words in your mouth. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know where I know where where we're headed. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know the this the the challenges facing management of this bird. It's not just this bird. I mean, if you look at every harvested species that we have. There are challenges that agencies have with every one of those species, whether they're, you know, really large charismatic type critters like elk or, or some of your large predators or whatever, or they're a turkey that, you know, up until now has been managed, you know, in a way that's basically like, well, we're going to use fairly liberal season frameworks and we're going to, to kind of go down the road and see how things shake out and, and now I think there's a lot of agencies and that realize that that maybe it's time to take a step back and look at you know what they're doing a little more critically and and it's not me saying that it's just I mean all you have to do is look around the United States the past few years and see the states that have made tweaks to their spring seasons in particular um, because they are trying to kind of thread the needle if you will they're they're trying to to make sure that their populations are sustainable and, and they're trying to do that with a lot of political pressure from us, from folks like us that are asking them and telling them when they want to hunt turkeys and why. So those agencies are trying to kind of, you know, walk that tightrope, if you will. And sometimes they make changes and sometimes they don't. But if you kind of look across the U.S. the past few years, as you as you as y'all know, you, you travel and you hunt turkeys. You know you see states are making little tweaks here and there, and and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to thread that needle or walk that that tightrope, if you will, and try to keep us happy, while also trying to make sure that they've got a sustainable resource. Yeah, that's got to be a challenge for sure. So, um, I have some questions I would like to ask uh, regarding turkey lifespans mike um okay. i've always been fascinated by this um i guess just a real general question to start out with is how long do turkeys live on average that just depends on whether they're hunted or not so and it also depends on the sex so in our hunted populations if a male and if he lives to be three years old he's done he's done something um most toms are harvested when they're two so if you look at our, our heavily hunted populations, you know, the age structure is pretty, pretty low. It's, it's young, young birds. Now, that being said, we routinely will get banded birds that are killed that we banded as jakes. So we knew how old they were and they're shot when they're five or six or seven or eight, you know, even nine years old. Um, in lightly hunted flocks and in areas with, with little hunting, if any hunting, you know, turkeys can live a long time. Their their records back 
you know, historic records from earlier researchers, you know, birds that were banded that were recaptured a, a decade later, 13 years, 15 years later. So in the absence of hunting and predation for your, for your hens, um, they can live a long time. And they're actually designed, if you, if you kind of look at turkeys, the way they function, they're designed to live more than just a couple of years. The, the way their social hierarchies play and the way they interact with each other and kind of the, the, the way their flocks are structured in that they're driven by dominance. You know, there are dominant birds and there are not. They're designed to live more than just a couple of years. It just so happens, at least with, you know, with the toms, if we hunt them a lot, we end up removing quite a few of them before they can get, get to be older. So it's safe to say that maybe, you know, without predation and, and with light hunting pressure, uh, a bird's old age, I guess you could say, doesn't start to catch up to them until maybe close to a decade old. So, well, yeah, I'd say six, seven, eight years old, you know, that's, that's pretty old for a bird, even, you know, even in the absence of, of hunting, because you, if you just think about it, just from the law of averages, you know, there's other things that kill turkeys. There's other things that eat turkeys. There's, um, so the probability of them living through all of that for however many years, you know, six, seven, eight years, that's, that's a tall order. Um, even without hunting or really light hunting pressure. Okay. And so uh, another question I would have uh, a follow-up question that would be in the absence of hunting pressure, um, what is typically uh, mortality rate of a bird starting from when they're a pole, freshly, you know, just newly hatched um, throughout this, their maturity process? Um, well, the, that's kind of, at least early on, it's irrespective of any type of, of hunting activity because when they're, when they're, you know, in the egg and then when they're hatching, their, you know, predation is, is driving their mortality rates irrespective of whether we're out there or not. So we see in the deep south that we lose about 80, 75 to 80 percent of all of our nest every year. So let's just say about 20% hatch. Uh, you see a little bit higher survival rates of nest as you get into Rios. Um, the problem with Rios is that they're, they're rain dependent. And so, and what I mean by that is if it's dry, they, they just quit. They don't, they're not too concerned with trying to reproduce during drought conditions. If it's a super wet year, you'll get just a huge pulse of reproduction. Wow. Huh. Um, Merriams tend to have a little higher nest success than, than Easterns as well. But, but in the deep South, we, you know, we're looking right now from about East Texas all the way over to North Carolina, across all of our study sites, we're looking at about 20, 20, 25% nest success. So most nests fail. Uh, and then of those that hatch about two thirds of those broods die before they're a month old. Um, and what that translates to is about 7% of all your nest on the landscape produce, produce poults. Um, it says pretty daunting, pretty daunting odds. Once they get to be about a, you know, two weeks old, uh, they can, they can fly, they can climb up on vegetation and get off the ground at night. Their survival dramatically increases. 
and, and then they go through a period that that frankly we don't understand and i've been trying to i've been trying to convince some people that have purse strings if you will that we need to study this but we don't we don't really have any clue what percentage of those birds that make it through that first month actually end up living into the fall that's kind of a gap in our knowledge um but once they get you know once they're young birds if you will once they're juvenile birds their survival is pretty good and then then they roll into their first spring and if they're you know if you're a tom or in this case if you're a jake you're it really just depends on how much hunting activity goes on you know in the deep south we we don't see a lot of harvest of jakes uh in in most of the states that i monitor closely in other areas you do um but jakes we don't lose a lot of jakes to anything other than hunting we'll have a few that are killed by horned owls or the occasional bobcat or whatever it is but they're pretty good they they'll usually survive until they're two years old and then you know then hunting becomes a, a prominent factor in their in their death hens man they man it's tough being a hen they you know if if they try to nest that first year they're usually unsuccessful our, our one-year-old hens you know they usually don't they usually don't hatch clutches but they try a lot of them do and every time they try incubating of course they're sitting duck if you will so we see you know we lose 15 20 percent of our hens each spring to nest you know they're, they're killed while they're nesting um and then the rest of the year they're pretty safe it's just uh for both sexes it's really come spring whether it's you're being hunted or you're being the target of predators it it starts becoming kind of dicey to be a turkey wow they have a lot they have a lot to uh they're up they're up against a lot um so back to the the age thing i guess you know we've always heard that there's a a massive difference in in like potency between like a jake and a tom but is there a is there a big difference between like a two-year-old tom and a five-year-old tom in potency um in wild birds we don't know i i can't answer that what what we because um what you typically see is that once a bird is two years old or older their 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 testes are functioning normally and they're they're capable of producing you know fertile sperm that will fertilize a clutch that gets really muddy when you start then looking at how their social interactions or how their dominance hierarchies affect them being able to breed um and what i mean by that is you could have you could have multiple birds that are standing around together and and some of them aren't capable of breeding even though they're adults because there's a dominant bird or multiple dominant birds that are suppressing their testosterone production to the point that their testes are normally i mean they're normal but they're not producing adequate levels of sperm to be able to fertilize clutches so i i don't know if it's an age driven thing per se but we know certainly that dominance matters if that answers your question we know we know with certainty that dominance and where you stand in the pecking order does influence to your you know the word you use was potency but so basically this this 
the ability to successfully fertilize clutches definitely can be influenced by where you stand in the dominance rank. No, that's, that's interesting. So, so it sounds like a popular population does need dominant birds in it for sure. And then in some cases it needs, I mean, doesn't, uh, doesn't, an, uh, in an ideal situation, uh, a hen have, uh, be bred by more than one Tom. Yeah. Yeah. So the first question, yes, we, we need in the way this bird is structured, dominance matters dominance dictates their life from the time they're very, very young until they die. And if you spend any time around turkeys as a turkey hunter, you see this with your own eyes. I mean, or if you just, you know, like me, I, you know, if I'm in a deer stand one afternoon, my favorite thing outside of seeing the buck that I'm after is watching a flock of turkeys because it's hilarious to me. It's absolutely hilarious <laughs> to watch these birds interact with each other, knowing as I'm watching these birds, okay, well, there's the dominant hen and there's a, a hen that's really, <laughs> she's really getting her, you know, the business handed to her from not just the top, the top hen, but every other hen around her. And so, so we know that dominance matters. And, and therefore, yes, the way this bird is supposed to function is they're supposed to be able to breed knowing that dominant birds are, are the primary breeders and hens should be able to have access to multiple toms, not just one, but, but several. And we've got a lot of work ongoing looking at this, but what little work has been done has shown that about 40% of all clutches in the population that was studied had multiple toms in the clutch. So, so yeah, there is a fairly significant percentage of the, the population of hens that, that is going to breed with multiple toms and those birds are going to be represented in her clutches. And people will often ask, well, why, you know, why would they do that? And it, if you, if you think about it, it makes complete sense because what this bird does is she stores sperm and then when her body when she starts going through the cycle of producing eggs her body releases that sperm and at that level there's sperm competition you know the best sperm wins so if she's got sperm from multiple birds and from being bred multiple times then some sperm are going to be more you know, mobile and, and viable than others and they'll win. Right. And, and that's going to help her, if you will, help her produce the most viable fittest clutch of eggs she possibly can. And that's what we want her doing, because if she can do that, then the, the quote unquote best birds in the population are going to be the ones that are contributing to the next year's population. And that, I mean, it's not just in turkeys that that same type of thing operates in a lot of species that have the same type of mating system that turkeys have. Well, and in the, in the, in the case with her, she, she additionally already got to choose her mate, um, by his physical appearance or actions too. Right. I mean, mm -hmm, by, mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, that's kind of interesting. Yep. Yeah. And we don't, we know, I say we, uh, you know, the research world kind of understands a good bit about their appearance. Of course, there's some things that we 
I think we think we know, and we probably really don't, but we know that head coloration matters. Uh, we know that, that, that snood length can matter. We know that iridescence matters. Otherwise, if you, know, if you, if you kind of think about it, well, of course it has to matter because you and I can both look at a bird and, and start picking out differences between, well, that bird right there appears more, he's shinier. He's more iridescent than the guy beside him. Well, lo and behold, you know, hens can perceive that as well. And so what the, the research has shown is that, that hens tend to, you know, dominant birds tend to be more iridescent. They tend to have uh, brightly colored heads. They tend to have longer snoods. And they also, those things tend to also reveal that they have lower parasite loads. In other words, they're more fit. They're, they're stronger. They're more aggressive. And makes sense. She's got to have some cues, you know, to figure out who to breed with and who's the top dog. And if she can kind of take a look at him and spend time around him beforehand, then she can figure out who the, you know, who the best bird is. And that's usually the dominant bird. That's why he's dominant, right? Uh, yeah. And, and um, I, I'm curious, I think I know the answer to this one already, but is dominance related to age or size? Um, in wild birds, we don't really know. You know, logic would dictate that that older birds would tend to be dominant birds. But you've seen this, and I we've all seen this. What happens is these these groups of toms that are, let's just say there there's a group of four, and they're all two year olds and they're hanging around together and there's a pair of toms nearby that are both four-year-olds. Well, those, those two four-year-olds may be the dominant birds in that area. Those two-year-olds will still strut, they'll still gobble, but they kind of, they kind of hang out on their own and they do their own thing and they stay away from those older birds. Well, then those older birds get, get shot. And now you've got a group of, all the same age birds well at that point other things matter aggressiveness maybe size maybe you know ability to fight whatever it is these things that we don't really understand that well those would be the things that would dictate who's the dominant bird and you've probably seen this like i have you know i've i've seen birds that were with a group of hens and were clearly the dominant bird that I could physically tell were smaller than, than other birds around them. And they ended up having, you know, smaller spurs than I expected or, or whatever the case may be. And, and I say all that just to point out, I, th I think there's quite a bit that we don't understand about how this bird becomes dominant over some other bird um, beyond just things, you know, that we can perceive like size, like you said, or, or coloration or there, there, I think there's other things to it that we just don't, we don't comprehend or can't perceive. Uh, could that be as simple as just like, you know, like on a farm, I've, I've seen that a lot of times where there's just a certain animal that just has an attitude and is just kind of cocky and maybe thinks, thinks he's bigger than he is. Yes. Yeah. You know, you, like you just said, you've, you've seen it. I've seen it. 
just for whatever reason, there's there's certain birds and populations that are just they're more aggressive. Um, a, a man once told me that spent his most most of his career actually sitting around turkeys that that he had imprinted to himself, so they would tolerate his presence, and they looked at him as a turkey. They thought he was a bird, even though he he clearly, from an appearance standpoint, wasn't. And he, he told me that, you know, turkeys in particular, there's just some birds, but most of them in general, never forget a fight. They just, they're always looking to fight constantly. Any opportunity that they see to fight, they do it. And I, I suspect, like with humans and other critters, there's just some of us that are more apt to be aggressive and more apt to, to dominate those around us. And that's you know probably the case in the turkey world. It's just some of these guys that are that are meaner and, and more aggressive, and that's you know that's how they end up at the top of the chain. Yeah, I went to high I went to high school with some guys like that. I did too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So that that's interesting. Um, your analogy about the two older birds versus the four two year old birds you described almost to a T a flock that I've been hunting on a particular property this year. Um, and so one of the things that I've noticed, and I'm sure a lot of experienced turkey hunters have noticed over the years is a lot of times you notice these, these small groups of two to four gobblers in the springtime and they're always together. And, um, within these little bunches, those birds are relatively friendly with one another. Um, but they all oftentimes they'll protect their little circles um, until one of them gets injured, at which point the other birds will almost always turn on him in, in an instant and attack him without mercy. <laughs> yeah. It, it's yeah. like even in the face of significant danger, like after a, you know, a, a shot or, or even multiple shots, you see these birds come rushing back to jump on top of this dying bird. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered... Um, you know, the behaviors always intrigue me. So what's the reason behind that? That is that, that's that pecking order that they, that's that never shy away from a fight mentality. You know, this, if, if you watch turkeys carefully, you'll see, you know, they attack each other at their heads that they're constantly feigning each other. They're constantly testing each other. And they've done that since the time they were, a few days old they you know these these pecking orders these dominance hierarchies have structured their entire lives and then all of a sudden a gunshot goes off and this bird that may have not been dominant to one of these other birds it's just a bird that that he has spent years of his life with is suddenly on the ground and that is a trigger to immediately assert dominance over that bird, even if he was already dominant over the bird, if that makes sense. You know, we all see this and, you know, I've, in fact, I harvested a bird this year that, that I was fortunate to be able to watch. And he was an outcast. He was by himself. He was shadowing two toms that were just raising hell and, and they were beautiful and his head had no color to it. And the closer he got to me, the, the closer he got, he started coloring up a little bit, but he wanted nothing to do with those two birds. And, 
and it, and I ended up harvesting him intentionally um, because I didn't I didn't want to take one of those other birds. It was it was early in the nesting season, and even though he was clearly subordinate to those other birds, as soon as that gun went off, those birds ran to him to attack him, um, which I you know is fascinating to me. But that's what that's what's doing it. It's an immediate trigger that's that's driven around that pecking order, that dominance hierarchy that that bird has been constrained under since they were tiny. And that's why they do some of the bizarre behaviors you just referenced. It's, it's mind blowing to me. I mean, you stand up and walk around and they just, they're oblivious to you. They, they're so enraged and so consumed by the need to step up in that pecking order because that's what has dictated their entire life. That's what's influenced when they ate, what they ate, who they ate beside, all these things that we, you know, we don't really pay attention to. That's been part of their life since very young. And when they see an opportunity to, to move up or attack that, that other bird, they take it. It's really cool stuff. Yeah. That's a, a, a few years ago I was hunting uh, black Columbia blacktail bucks and I had a nice buck come in and I shot, I shot him. I double lunged him with my bow and he went about 30 yards away and bedded down. And I just sat in my blind and waited. And all of a sudden another nice blacktail buck came, came just strolling through and he just went directly for him and just started, you know, just charging him on the ground, on the ground and kicked him up out of his bed. And here the poor thing is, you know, it's like bleeding out and everything and kicked him up out of his bed like two, two times. Uh, and I just was thinking that I was like, boy, that reminds me of turkeys. And it's all, mm-hmm. you know, all these animals are that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fascinating. So are those, uh, in, in those cases, um, is that, are they most likely like if three toms come in or, or, and one of them's dominant and the other two are subordinate, are they most likely siblings, brothers that, Based on what we know, there is a, a pretty high probability that, that at least two of them are related. Um, and, and what happens, as you can imagine, this would be highly variable, but, you know, these groups of jakes that we see that are six or eight, you know, jakes, maybe even ten, those, those group of jakes split the following spring, and they end up in these little pockets of toms that we see so to your analogy, you know, say three, in many cases, yeah, some of them, if not all of them are related to each other because they were hatched out of the same clutch, but not always. Sometimes you may end up with, you know, with the occasional bird that's not related and, and to the, to the situation I just described in Florida, that, that was exactly what, what I saw was there was a group of three toms and two of them were joined at the hip and literally were, you know, shadowed each other everywhere they went, everywhere they strutted, everywhere they walked. Um, and then there was this other guy, you know, that was just kind of part of the party, if you will. If I had to hazard a guess based on the science thus far, those two were brothers and that, that other Tom was not related to them, but had been spending time around them, you know, since, since the previous, this previous spring. Well, and there, their their instinct um to attack you know um once they 
know that a bird has has gone down, I guess, so to speak, um, is so fascinating to me that um, on a hunt that I was on earlier this year, um, uh, a kid that we had taken out was able to kill a, a nice long beard out of a group of five that came in. Well, after that bird went down, the other four toms left the scene and we stayed in the blind and this bird is thrashing around. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, three jakes appeared and they didn't, they didn't witness the shot. No doubt they heard it, but they were able to sense presumably by the fact that they could hear all the commotion of the bird, you know, doing the, the death flop that he was hurt. And they came rushing in and they started pummeling his, you know, his dying body. I just, just fascinating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I've seen the same thing as well. It's a uh, never, you know, like, like my colleague said, you know, they never forget a fight or never miss the opportunity to engage in one. So uh, in the case of, uh, like, let's say, let's say there's a, a dominant Tom that's, that comes in with, uh, with two subordinate Toms and the a hunter shoots the dominant Tom. Um, you were saying that there's actually some, some physical differences that the subordinate ones aren't, aren't really potent yet. Um, so how long does it take them to get up to speeds, so to speak? We don't really know. Um, there's not like a, an answer that would define every situation what the research has shown and there hasn't been a ton of work on this topic but what's out there has shown that like a scenario of three where you've got you've got one breeder that is is clearly capable of breeding producing a lot of testosterone maybe the second tom is also producing quite a bit of testosterone but is not really capable of breeding yet and then let's just say that third that third guy is is way down the totem pole and is not producing much testosterone well you take that dominant bird out that second bird may be able to step up the next day three days later five days later we we just don't know and i think if, if you kind of think about it it should naturally depend on a lot of things, his body condition, um, the time of the year that that other bird was removed, whether it was early, late, whatever, the availability of, of hens around him. In other words, what are there factors stimulating testosterone production or increases? Um, so there's a lot going on there, but, but what that same research showed is that, for that third bird, even though you removed the dominant bird, he still doesn't become a breeder. That the suppression of testosterone was so dramatic that even in the absence of that dominant bird, that, that, that third bird just doesn't step up. And I get this question a lot, and there's just so much we don't understand about, about this whole process, but I kind of tell people, when you think about that question, also think about the hen, because the way this bird and other species that use that mating system that turkeys use, the way they work is the females are supposed to be able to pick the best males. That, that's, that's the point. So if you remove the best bird, you're then asking two things to happen. You're asking the 
the next male to just step up the next day, which we just talked about. Sometimes that doesn't happen. And we don't really know how long that takes for all birds. And you're asking the hen to just accept the fact that he's now the dominant bird and just move on. And that's not the way sexual selection works. That's not, I mean, turkeys are, are gaudy and obnoxious looking and they gobble and they do these things that we all cherish as hunters. That's part of their display. They do that because they're trying to assert dominance and they're trying to attract attention. And they know in their world, like we've talked about, that they're not all the same. They don't all look the same. They don't all act the same. And there's some that are better than others. So if we remove the, the best, if you will, from that group, we shouldn't just assume she's going to wake up the next morning and fly down and go, oh, okay, well, you'll do. You know, no, you were number two for a reason. So that kind of parallels what you see with other critters like prairie chickens, for instance, who kind of delay some breeding opportunities after that dominant bird disappears because she's kind of going back to the drawing board, if you will, and saying, okay, let me make absolutely sure who I'm looking at and that he's the best pick here. And if so, yeah, I'll go ahead and breed with him. And if not, I'm going, I'll, I'll keep looking, you know, I'll keep choosing if you will. So that's a tough question to answer, man. Uh, it's got a lot of moving parts and it makes my head hurt, honestly, thinking about it. <laughs> Um, sorry sorry no it does it, it's fascinating to me and, and i i'll be honest with you i guess i'm just a goober head but i i think about these things when i'm hunting this bird and i think about it when i see the birds in the field and i think about the consequences and really i think about what we don't know i think about you know damn i, I wish i knew the answer to that question because that is a great question and i get it all the time and i hate to say there's just a lot we don't know but that's really that's really the most appropriate answer is there's just a lot we don't know yeah well that's 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 good i mean that's exciting that makes that makes your work exciting if there's uh if there's a lot a lot to learn and stuff but uh so a couple of things that i picked up on and what i'm starting to learn here is you had talked about that hunt earlier where you said there was these two you know really big mature toms with a lot of uh iridescence to them and stuff like that you purposely shot the one that wasn't so in your own management you are purposely trying to have some escapement of big mature toms and it kind of makes me wonder well actually i'll go back to a question one of the questions that we got uh last week a guy named uh bo slatten he asked do you think only hunting toms from a group of birds hurts the numbers and so what, what would you say to, what would you say to Bo? Uh, let me make sure I understand. So it hunting from groups of Toms is he's saying, is that problematic? Well, he's just basically saying, you know, he, he said, he said, I'll say it again. He said, uh, do you think only hunting Toms from a group of birds hurts the numbers? In other words, uh, you know, are we, when, when we go, go hunting and, and we all shoot the big, you know, the biggest, uh, most mature or dominant Tom, uh, before, uh, you know, too early before the, yeah, yeah, that Tom yeah. got to breed is, is that, could that potentially be a big a problem? That that's a, that's a good question. And that's another one. We just, we just don't, we don't know, but I, I will say this, um, it's logical to me 
if you think about how this bird mates and how their breeding system works, based on what we've just talked about, which we know some of these things with certainty that say dominance matters. If, if we're taking some of the, the more dominant birds or a large percentage of them out of the population prior to and during the peak of breeding, then to me it's nonsensical to think that doesn't have some impact on the bird. It would have to. Um, the problem is we don't know what the magnitude of that impact is. And for instance, you know, you could have a scenario where you have a, a bunch of toms walk up to you and it's a month before the, the breeding season and you shoot what appears to be the biggest dominant bird out and those other, let's just let's say there's seven of them, the other six live a month before breeding, eh, maybe that doesn't matter. But if you went in and shot four of those seven, and you left the remaining three to handle breeding for that entire group of hens, understanding that that only one of those is a primary breeder or would become a primary breeder. To me, and maybe I'm just looking at this wrong, but to me, it's logical to think that has some effect because those three remaining toms in all likelihood were not the dominant birds in that flock. Um, so yeah, I, I do if I can, and, and, and I'm, I'm admittedly a little different type of turkey hunter. I think maybe not. I don't know. I, um, I have well moved past the point where I could, I literally could care less how long the beard is, what the spurs look like. I, I could not care less. Um, do I keep those things? Yes. I keep every set of spurs and every beard that I kill off of birds that I kill. And I document where I killed the bird. I write down something about the hunt because at some point I won't be able to do this and I'll have to look back on, you know, at those spurs and those beards and I can reflect. Yeah. But I don't care what the beards look like or the spurs. And I haven't for some time. I'm, I'm more concerned with one, I want to make sure I have a, a quality hunt. I want to make sure that I enjoy myself and am able to see the bird do their thing. And if that means sometimes letting a, a bird that has put on a show walk off to shoot one that wasn't part of the show, um, this is just my personal opinion. And I'm, I'm certainly not trying to instill it on someone else, but I'm fine with that because I still got the show and I know based on the science that there's, it's very likely that those two birds that I let walk, they're going to continue to do their thing for some period of time. And is that going to help the population? I honestly don't know. Uh, but it certainly couldn't hurt. So that's just my, that's the way I kind of, I kind of view it. So um, I have a question I'm kind of dying to ask here on the subject of spurs and, and beards. Are physical uh, characteristics such as beards and spurs and maybe um, plumage, um, are they, are you able to use these characteristics in, in any way to determine a bird's age? No. No, you can. So, yes, 
and no. <laughs> um, <laughs> the yes would be, yeah, there are some things that, you know, the barring of their primary feathers at the end, basically the white bars on the ends, the tips of their, their last two wing feathers. If, if they're white bars all the way out to the end, you're looking at a two-year-old or older bird. Um, we all know generally that, you know, the jakes have these little nub spurs and yeah, that's usually foolproof that, you know, if you're looking at those little nub spurs and then you look at that wing and, and it doesn't have bars. Yep. You're looking at a Jake. Once those wings are, are barred all the way out to the end, you have to start paying less attention to the other two things because, you know, beard, beard length is highly variable, not only across individual birds, but across areas. Um, beard length can be influenced by environment and uh, pigment levels and all these other things. And spurs, although we, we as hunters love to, to, you know, debate back and forth the, the age of a turkey based on their spur length, it's, it's a flawed, it's a flawed system. And I, I get as much criticism and crap about this subject as I do anything else. <laughs> and I honestly don't know how else to say it to people, but, um, if you're looking at a bird let's just say here in Georgia that has a, a five eighths or three quarter inch spur. Are you most likely looking at a two year old bird? Yes. Could it be something else? Yes. Um, research has shown that if just using that, that spur length, you've got about a 25% chance at being wrong in thinking he's a two year old. He could be three, he could be five, he could be six, who knows? So same with three-year-olds, about a 25% failure rate. You think they're three, they're actually two or four or whatever. As we get older in birds, and these are birds that we have known, we know how old they are. We, we banded them as jakes and then they're shot years later. I, I can show you data from five, six, seven-year-old birds that had spurs that were less than an inch. And I can show you data from two-year-old birds that had inch and a quarter or bigger spurs and everything in between. So at the end of the day, I, I usually answer this question by saying, if you're willing to be wrong one out of four times, then use spur length and go with it. If you are not comfortable with being wrong one out of four times, then who cares <laughs> how old <laughs> the bird is? Just enjoy the fact that you shot the bird and quit trying to put him into an age class like a whitetail and just enjoy the fact that you called this bird up and you enjoyed the show he put on and and move on and take him home and enjoy him for what he is and don't worry about how old he is that's kind of that's kind of the way i answer that question mm, that's a great answer yeah i um i i killed two birds here a couple of years ago that were both banded as adults and they'd been banded two years prior so these are at least three-year-old birds they had Jake-like spurs. I'm talking little nubs on them, like mm -hmm. quarter-inch nubs. Yeah. And that, yeah. that was the first time it really had me doubting, you know, the whole correlation between spur length and, and age. So it's that's um, it's really cool to hear, you know, your your reinforcement of that. Yeah, and we, we see, 
you know, like I said, we see so much variation in spur length across ages and and of course, you know, the if you kind of look at, at turkey hunters and, and I think hunters in general, but turkey hunters are notorious for this. You know, we want, we, 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 we look at this bird in such awe and we, you know, they're, they're gorgeous. They're, they're, they're showy, <clears throat> they're gaudy. They're just, they're beautiful. And you, you want to bring, you know, mystique to the bird and, and you look at their spurs and you're like, man, that, based on the textbooks that were written in the 1970s that's a that's a five-year-old bird and in reality the information that went into those textbooks just like science in general it progresses and it changes and this notion that you know something that was conducted back 50 years ago would never change to me is is kind of crazy to, to even think that um but we in the turkey <laughs> turkey hunting world we've done that and again it's one of the more it's one of the more contentious discussions i get in with people you know you can get a turkey hunter mad about a lot of things because we're opinionated you know <laughs> but boy when you start attacking the basic tenant of spur length <clears throat> and age you can you can get some people absolutely furious um, that I know are mild-mannered people. In fact, I have a friend who is about the most calm, laid-back person I know, and I can I can get him so angry bringing this subject up that he will he will be unable to speak. To me. He will have to, <laughs> and I just I just have to tell him, man, it's okay not knowing how old he is is okay it you know it that's it's going to be okay if you just reflect back on how much fun it was and how blessed you are to harvest the bird and just don't worry about it and but he doesn't he doesn't (laughs) like that well i think that hunters kind of naturally um they they want to uh they want to put that that age on, on the bird because the perception is that the older birds are wiser mm-hmm. and they're more sought after, you know, um, and, and I'm certainly guilty of that myself. And then of course there's the whole physical appearance of say an inch and a quarter spur versus a five eighths inch spur. You know, it's like a big rack on a deer versus mm-hmm. a spindly little three point, you know? Um, oh yeah. I mean, we all do that. I mean, who, Who's going to, you know, this classic pose that I, that I see people when they hold the legs up, you know, for the camera where you can see the spurs. Hell, how many, how many pictures do you see on Instagram that have half inch spurs and they're, you know, they're, they're holding those legs up with some dinky <laughs> right. spurs, you know I mean? They want those hooks where people can see, you know, how special that bird was. And I get it, you know, I get it. There is a mystique about spur length that, uh, and that's fine if that's your if that's your stick, then go for it. But just just don't assume you're going to look down there at a tape measure and tell somebody how old he is. Well, you know, one thing that I'm taking away from this is like, you know, like Brad and I for years, we've really enjoyed uh, picking out out of a out of a big grind of geese, picking out a bird with a neck collar. Well, that was a super fun thing for us, and and uh, we we've got we've got lots of them, and uh, th- those birds aren't the oldest birds in the flock, but it was fun 
to look for a bird with a leg band or a neck collar and shoot and shoot it. It's probably a biologist's nightmare, but you know, when <laughs> yes, it comes it to, is. <laughs> <laughs> but when it comes to turkey hunting, uh, you know, the like we see guys at the NWTF show, and we have lots of customers and stuff like that that have a big, you know, necklace full of great big spurs and stuff like that. Well, you know, I think that that there's a definitely a trophy aspect to that, regardless of how old the bird was, because they still had to pick out, you know, they still had to pick out a, a, a particular bird with the biggest, you know, with the biggest spurs. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of cool. And that's kind of fun. I mean, that's kind of human nature, you know, I mean, we, 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 as human beings, I mean, yeah, we do that. I think some people do that. Uh, yeah. That, I can, which, I can which, assure you that, some people do that. <laughs> Probably, yeah, maybe yeah. even many. Yeah, I, I can tell yeah. you. At least I don't. Um, and but I do. I have hunted with a with a guy who, you know, would would do that. Um, that is absolutely at least from a, the band perspective is exactly what you said. That is a scientist nightmare because what you're doing is biasing um, harvest rate data because you're preferentially selecting tagged birds and therefore you're inflating the estimated harvest rate in other words you're you're disproportionately affecting the banded birds so from the agency's perspective what they end up getting is holy crap they shot the crap out of our birds here we need to adjust some regulations because they're shooting the hell out of them when in reality you were you're kind of picking out the banded birds. Uh, if you kind of follow that logic, that and, and waterfowl managers, they are very sensitive to that because they know that happens and that can create some real problems for them when it comes to making inferences from the data because there's a bias there. Just like a bias of not shooting an animal. I deal with this all the time uh, with deer. We collar deer and you know, the deer walks out and a hunter says, well, hell, I'm not, I'm not shooting that deer because I'll get in trouble or, you know, there's something wrong with the deer or, well, I don't want to shoot an animal they work so hard to catch. And and then we, we tell the hunters, we're like, you know, no, if that's deer you would otherwise shoot, just shoot it. That's part of why we're doing the, the study. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, those tag biases, they they pop up a lot in what we do. Yeah, well, in our in our case, well, I, I was I was gonna say, wow, Brad. You know, I was just gonna try to blame it all on Brad, but like in our case, I guess, I mean, w- two things is one is the, the biologists know us and they know that that's what we're doing, and so, uh, but the other thing is is that there's a giant flock of geese over here that we've hunted for a long, long time, and they 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 get mixed up with dusky Canada geese because uh, they look exactly like them, but they're not duskies, and they're actually. They're actually a hybrid uh, cross between a Western Canada goose and a Dusky Canada goose um, that they actually want out of the population. And the only way you can shoot one is if it has a, a white collar. So, ah, I've, interesting. I, yeah, yeah. I've literally had, uh, you know, state policemen, game wardens. Um, I've and and even the wildlife managers from the Department of Fish and Wildlife from from both Washington and and Oregon come with me and hunt with me and shoot those birds. So, I, I mean, we're we're not it doesn't completely, you know, uh, rid us of all guilt, but, but in, in, a, in that case, <laughs> uh, but so on, 
back to the age of birds. So is, you know how, like with a, with a fish, you can look at its, its otolith, its ear bone and, and, and cross section it and tell how old it is. Or, or, you know, with a deer, you can, you can cross section its tooth. Is there anything on a turkey, any physical characteristics that would maybe suggest it's, it's age? No, not really. Um, there's, there's some anecdotal stuff about that was published years ago about, you know, color of legs and these types of things. But what you end up seeing is there's so much variation from one bird to another and one locality to another that in the end of the day, turkeys are like a lot of critters, you know, there's just no two are the same, if you will. And, and therefore there's just so much variation that, that no, I mean, and this was noted by earlier researchers that, you know, one, one would often, in fact, one that I've, you know, that gets brought up a lot in the turkey world is a guy named Lovett Williams who, who studied Osceola's, he called them Florida turkeys at the time for his entire career. And, and he wrote some of the seminal works on turkeys in general. And a lot of times you, you, if you read his writings, you know, he would say, Hey, we think that you can use this to figure out X, Y, or Z, but when you really sit down and look at it, there's so much variation in whatever that thing is that it's very likely not reliable. And, and he says that a lot with, with various, you know, things on turkey bodies and their appearance. I think it just speaks to the fact that there's just so much variation, you know, across the bird's range. But sure. Mike, is it at least fair to say that um, you can use certain plumage characteristics on say, you know, a, a Jake, for example, oh, yeah, it's going yeah. through his molt of his oh, yeah. primary tail feathers. You know, you can see the difference in the length of the center feathers being longer than the outer feathers. And, and I've even noticed, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the, the speculum is still going through a molting process more often than not, where a Tom will have a big, bright, beautiful, full speculum on his wing, whereas the Jakes tend to have more of a modeled, um, shorter, broken up uh, speculum by comparison. Yeah, some of that is just their, is their molting, yeah. I mean, some of that is just that, you know, that, that Jake is still, you know, turkeys continuously molt, so they, they're molting year, year round, at least in these little pulses, and um, so, yeah, you do see, you know, more iridescence and more of the shiny black barring on on toms and jakes and of course i mean yeah obviously when you when you start looking at trying to figure out differences between hens and toms i mean it's pretty simple um although it's really interesting kind of tidbit it's not uncommon to see hens that will have the occasional male characteristic i've we i've personally put my hands on on hens under, you know, that we call the rocket net that I look at her and go, wait a minute, what, what is going on here? And she's got, you know, patches of her feathers that look like, you know, black tipped, you know, iridescent feathers. So, but yeah, you can obviously, I mean, you can use some of these feather characteristics to, to get you, you know, I'm looking at an adult, I'm looking at a juvenile, I'm looking at a male or female, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, interesting bird that I saw this season when I was scouting. I've seen him several times um, since the season opened. 
was a bird that had uh, this is a, a mature gobbler, long, nice long beard, full fan, um, you know, nice big mature spurs on him. Um, and he has almost no caruncles whatsoever at, at the base of the neck. I mean, the feathers go almost all the way to, um, oh, what is it? What is it called? The the throat, the the patch of skin on their throat. Is that the... the like dewlap, yeah. The dewlap, yep. 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 Yep, there was almost a complete absence of, of caruncles low on his neck. Looked very similar to a hen to me. Yeah, that's was, crazy. When he was standing next to other gobblers, I mean, he stuck out. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, and, you, you know, I get pictures of, as you can imagine, I, I get pictures of, of all sorts of odd turkeys every year, whether they're harvested or they're on trail cameras or whatever, and and sometimes I get pictures sent to me and they're like, Hey, you know, what's going on with this bird? And I literally just have to respond and say, I have absolutely no clue. Like that bird is just a goofball. I, I don't know what's going on with that bird. And, um, yeah, sometimes you just see odd, odd things. Well, it's, so, it's uh, 2021. There's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot there's of, a lot yeah. Of <laughs> yeah. yeah. No um, so while we're still on the subject of some of the physical characteristics of these birds, um, let's talk about the different subspecies because, you know, one of the things that you hear a lot about is that Merriams and particularly the, the you know, higher elevation Merriams tend to have smaller spurs mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and shorter, thinner beards. And I've always wondered why that is. Is it, a, is it subspecies related? Is it? Is it just the, you know, the habitat that they're in? Is it the weather conditions? It's, it's just subspecies, uh, excuse me, subspecies driven. But, but again, you'll see, you'll see some, some pretty dramatic abnormalities, if you will, or, or kind of extremes for, you know, one, for instance, you know, we always read that like Merriam's have these tiny spurs and I mean, heck, one of the Merriam's I shot this year was you know he was an inch and an eighth on both sides and i was like man that's pretty good spur for merriams you know and, and super sharp super black and um and then the next one was typically you know what i would expect on the for merriams based on the other birds that i've killed so so yeah you tend to see these kind of general differences where you you go from osceolas and easterns that have the the longer you know sharper type spurs to the to Rios and Merriams and Goulds that tend to have shorter spurs and often, at least for your mountain birds, blunted, you know, kind of rough tip spurs in a lot of cases. Some of that is, is subspecies and some of it's just environment, you know, as you alluded to. If you think about a bird walking around in on ground that is really rugged and rocky and tough, I mean, it would make sense that those, those spurs and, you know, would get beat up and busted and kind of blunted off, so... Yeah, that's typically what you see. Gotcha. So, Mike, if if we're uh, if you were making decoys, um, that you know you were talking about some of those some of the most mature dominant birds have have some of the brightest iridescence and stuff like that, and you know, we 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 hear from a lot of our customers, and we get a lot of customers that will say, you know, I, I've been using this other decoy for years, and it never it never worked as good as yours, and you know, I guess we we kind of look look for for emails like that and read and read them sure, multiple, sure. multiple times uh but you know and, and a lot of times they'll say that the decoy that i had before was really 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 bright and really really shiny and and had a lot of iridescence and do you think 
that from a decoy standpoint, we, we are better off to kind of doing like we do where the iridescence is kind of natural, kind of subtle and not, not over overly done. And that way the bird doesn't look aggressive and dominant or intimidating. I, I think it would, it all boils down to the individual bird in the individual situation. And I, I don't mean to sound, you know, like I'm trying to ride the fence, but you know, y'all in your lot of business, you've seen this as well as I have that, you know, a decoy in a certain situation with a certain bird for reasons that I can't comprehend doesn't elicit the response that I was expecting. And I don't know why. And then all of, you know, suddenly there's a, a decoy that it's the same decoy, different bird, different day, or even the same bird, different day. And it elicits a completely different response. Um, I think a lot of it just, you know, if you, if you look at, and this is, this is something I try to think about and I get this question very rarely and I, but I knew you guys would ask it. So it's it's a good question. Mm -hmm. You know, turkeys see things differently than we do. So their, the way their, their vision works is dramatically different than the way our vision works. They, they have periscopic monocular vision. So their two, their eyes work independently of each other and they perceive colors differently than we do because of the differences in rods and cones in their, in their eye. So I don't know that. I can't answer your question with a definitive yes or no, but I would say it makes sense to me that something that was super, super bright to us and super, super iridescent to us could potentially cause a bird to go, wait a minute, wait, what, what's going on here? Because in their world, you know, they don't see that the same way for all we know particularly given the way they see colors, maybe they see a really brightly colored decoy that's shiny and, and the sun glints off of it in weird ways. Maybe they see that as being completely abnormal or suspect and they go, no, something's wrong there. Whereas a more natural kind of hue that doesn't glow, maybe they look at that and, and they're reassured, particularly if the, the head colorations and everything are, consistent with the way they see each other then i would see them yes maybe saying yeah i can tell you know they don't know it's a decoy obviously that's the point but i could see them looking at one decoy and saying "Mm -mm, something's not right about that and then looking at another one and saying okay that you know that i'm i'm calm everything looks fine here um based on the you know the differences and how they see things versus us yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's that's good to hear. Like, uh, and I, I know that matters on our waterfowl decoys too. We even we even uh, broke down and bought a spectrometer uh, about uh, eight years ago and stuff to to try to be able to measure the reflection, like in the ultraviolet range. Uh, but sure. actually, it measures the reflection in the visible spectrum too. But um, yeah, it's it's that's interesting stuff, and it's always what what kind of drives us to try to try to nail that, nail that down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a good question. So you just brought up head color and that's kind of another hotly debated topic these days. Um, how would you explain head color and, and how, um, 
are you able to determine what a bird's mood is based on the coloration of, of the bird's head? We think we can, you know, um, I, th- I think, and, and some research has, has shown this too. I think most of us would agree that a bird that's agitated or, or scared, you know, concerned, they tend to get a red type glow to their head. Um, you'll often see, as y'all have seen, you know, birds that are, that are aggressive towards each other and they're fighting, you know, you'll see some of those subtle blues and whites kind of, kind of change and go red. And that, you know, I guess the analogy I'm seeing red kind of apropos, but, um, I, I, I would say probably there's less agreement. Maybe you, you tell me what you think, but I think there's probably less agreement on what the blues and the whites and the, those other tones mean. Uh, I just know from my own experience that, you know, birds that are super wound up and they're excited, you know, that white skull cap is so obvious. Um, and the, the contrast in the colors from one part of their head to their caruncles is so dramatic. And, you know, as I'm sitting here explaining, kind of reliving this in my mind, I'm sitting here thinking about several birds I saw this season and it was just like in awe, just like, holy cow, look how gorgeous he is. Just, and those were birds that were, that were super calm and they were, they were in their element and they were doing their thing. And, and beyond that, I, I think there's, again, there's a lot we think we know, and we may be on to something, but I suspect it's a lot more complicated than we, than we make it, particularly when you, when you see birds that change colors so dramatically within seconds and then can go, you know, can make those changes so quickly suggest to me that it, you know, it may be a little more complex because a, a, a bird that's in a situation and they're not changing their behavior that dramatically, but their head color is changing suggests to me that these things we see as being very overt, like they're, yes, they're starting to fight. Well, that makes sense. Well, maybe there's some other things that are going on that are more subtle that are influencing those, those changes that we just don't understand. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I was on a hunt yesterday evening when we called in three jakes and initially they came in and they had that super fired up look like you explained you know the well-defined white cap on top of the head super red all the way from the throat down to the you know bottom of it of their caruncles and a very you know well-defined blue you know cheek patch Mm -hmm. around the Mm -hmm. eye there um they came in they approached our Jake decoy and they just started beating the living tar out of it. Well, after 15 minutes or so, they kind of gave up on that fight and kind of lost interest. And, and, um, they walked about 40 yards or so. And for whatever reason, they stopped all three of their heads turned white and they came right back in and started beating the tar out of the decoy. again. And I just, <laughs> I just threw my arms up, you know, I'm like what? Maybe they were just taking a break. You know? uh, yeah. Yeah. But it certainly didn't help answer that question, you know, about mood uh, versus color. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, I, and I've, I've never, I haven't seen that, but I have seen, I have seen birds that, that changed, you know, in the course of, of watching them. And I couldn't figure out exactly what the difference, like, 
you know, I was watching the bird and, oh, okay, I can start seeing some subtle changes there, but I'm not seeing that he's doing anything differently than he was doing 30 seconds ago or two minutes ago, but he is. Obviously, something's different to him. You know, so I, again, I think some of it is a little more complex than we, than maybe we can perceive, yeah. which is part of the, I mean, to me, honestly, that's kind of part of the, the sexiness and glamour about it is, you know, we don't have to understand everything. <laughs> so sometimes not knowing is cool, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's like with, with any hunting and fishing, you just don't want it guaranteed and you don't want to completely understand. Uh, that's for sure that the learning as is the fun part of the process yeah. yeah sure uh well so yeah michael we've taken up a lot of your time and i know that you've done a lot of these and you've got a lot of stuff to do we just appreciate it so much but uh just am i am i right in um kind of a, making the assessment that it's it's kind of kind of okay to shoot jakes like we have a we have customers that that they act like they're cowering uh, in embarrassment when they shoot a Jake. And I've certainly shot Jake's myself and stuff like that. But from a, st- from an ecology standpoint and conservation standpoint, it kind of sounds like that's, that's actually okay. Would, would you agree with that? It, well, it depends on a couple of things. One is your, is your rate of harvest. Um, if you're taking a, a large percentage of Jake's. So in other words, you know, if you're, if you're shooting a lot of jakes in general, and that happens to be a, a significant proportion of the jakes that are out there, then that could be problematic because sure. you're obviously taking, you know, your future breeders. Um, you know, from a from a population, th- this is the way I kind of answer that. From a population perspective, jakes don't exist to a turkey population. They they they're not breeders except in very, very rare situations. So they're not really there until they're two years old. So if you're in a situation where, in fact, I was, I was asked this exact same question yesterday on a podcast, completely different audience as an aside, which is good. Um, and I kind of noted that, you know what, if you're, I've shot Jake's, it's been many, many years since I've done it, but I've killed Jake's. Um, but if you're, you're out with a new hunter, you're out with a young hunter, you're out with a person that doesn't get a lot of opportunity. You're in a situation where, you know, this person doesn't get to hunt much or wh- whatever the scenario is. And, and a Jake is there and, and it's legal to be harvested then, then who am I or you or anyone else to shame that person for shooting, shooting that bird? I mean, it's a legal bird. Um, I, I understand the, the mentality in the turkey hunting community because I'm part of that community. Um, I choose not to shoot them myself, but I certainly don't frown on them being harvested again unless I look at harvest data and I see that wow, 20% of the birds they harvested in the spring were jakes. Well, if that's the case, and in particular, if you're in a situation where you have concerns about your population or the timing and harvest of, of breeding toms, well, just recognize that, you know, that bird didn't get the opportunity to become a breeding tom, and therefore 
really had no opportunity to contribute to your to your population. So that's kind of the way I, I answer that question. Um, and again, in most states, at least that I look at, Jake Harvest is not really, it's not really that big of a deal. A lot, most states that I look at, they don't shoot that many jakes. Some do, some kill more than others. And in particular states that have fall seasons, you'll see a higher, you know, jake harvest, which makes sense. You know, some of those jakes are being shot in fall when they're, when they're in flocks and they're kind of stupid and, and they're, you know, they're easy to call up um, relative to say adult toms, which can be really, really hard to hunt in the fall. Um, so yeah, I, that's kind of the way I look at it. If it's legal and you want to take the opportunity, then who are, who are we or, you know, any of us in our community to, to judge based on that. So what is, what is the best thing that we could do? Like as, as hunters, it, would it be, if we're going to shoot, if we're going to shoot mature toms, is it to shoot them uh, like later in the season? What's, what's the best thing that we can do to ensure that the populations are just healthy and strong and into the future? Well, it, it wouldn't just be, it wouldn't just be, you know, making sure our harvest strategies were, were most appropriate. It would, you know, the things that are the challenges facing this bird go way, way beyond harvest. It's, it's not a hunting issue per se. It's much more complex than that. From a harvest perspective, we've, we've known for decades that the most conservative biologically appropriate way of harvesting the bird would be to, to make sure that the timing of that kill is timed to where most breeding has already occurred and that is when you start having hens go to nest so that answer is pretty easy to give is you know if you want the most biologically appropriate season it needs to be when most of your breeding has already occurred and if you do that it doesn't really matter theoretically who you shoot as long as you shoot an appropriate percentage of your toms then that's sustainable um now the problem is we don't understand what that appropriate percentage is in most places um emerging evidence suggests to me that it's not as high as we once thought but that's because we're not producing as many turkeys as as maybe we thought you know that that we were 20 or 30 years ago but that's subject for another day but but yeah making sure your timing and your rate that's the two things with harvest it's really that simple the timing and the rate the percentage that you're removing and when you're removing them that's the two things that make a harvest framework appropriate or not so much interesting so um i have an example here uh of, of a property that that i'm hunting currently where there are 10 jakes and seven mature toms and before the season i believe there were somewhere around 20 hens um that number has since declined to five hens presumably the other 15 or at least majority of them are are now nesting so what would you suggest is the most responsible more most sustainable approach to how to hunt those birds at this point so basically you know 
what do you take out of those seven toms? Yes, exactly. Or yeah. or even the Jakes. Yeah. So you know, if you're in a, the one thing to understand about Jakes is that just because you're seeing them now doesn't mean they're going to be there next year. They are our, our our Jakes. What they do when they disperse is they don't do like um, some other species where they may go 30 or 40 miles down the road. They don't do that. But it is very common for them to shift in a way where they're not going to be on your property next year unless you own a lot of property. So if you own a thousand acres or a couple thousand acres here in the south and you're seeing 10 jakes, recognize if at least some of those jakes are going to be gone before next spring. They'll be down the road a couple miles. It'll be three miles, five miles over there. They'll be on your neighbor's property, whatever. So, so that's something to consider. It's not a one-to-one -one translation, meaning if you've got 10 jakes this year, you should logically think you'll have 10 toms next year. It's not that, that simple. Um, the thing I usually point out to people when I'm asked the same type of question is a lot of that depends on what your neighbors are doing and how much, you know, how big your local population is. But if you're in a situation where you're in isolation, let's say, and you, nobody else is taking birds out of those seven toms, um, if you understood in some general sense what your production looked like in the summer. So in other words, how many poults are you seeing? How many young birds are you seeing each summer? If you're, if you're in a situation where you're producing a lot of turkeys, um, then you may be able to, to take, you know, 30% of those, those toms out of that, that bunch and not affect the population. On the other hand, uh, if you're not producing a lot of turkeys, then you, you know, taking 30%, which would be two of those birds, is, is would be considered a very high harvest rate. So if you were in a situation where, and this is based on science from 1980s on, 30% um, is, is widely considered to be about the, the highest sustainable harvest rate for wild turkeys. And that was developed when production was was twice what we see in the South right now. So a lot more birds were being produced. So if you look at a group of seven, a 30% harvest rate, based on my rough math, would be would be um, two 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 point 2.1 birds. Yeah. So two toms. If you did that every year and you were producing birds, you should expect that that flock to be sustainable. If you shoot three or four of them, you shouldn't expect that flock to be sustainable, even if you've got a bunch of jakes running around, if that makes sense. It's just not a one-to-one -one translation from one year to the next. I see. Yeah, this, this particular flock, though, uh, the property is only 50 acres borders up to another property that's oh probably 500 acres and they go back and forth between those properties but nobody is hunting the 500 acres um, and they very seldom go on to any of the other neighboring properties uh, we we haven't noticed any any decline in the number of uh, jakes or toms mm -hmm, since the season mm -hmm. started four weeks ago so that's a good yeah. thing <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and that kind of sounds like I've heard that with with uh, white tail white tail buck like spikes. I've heard people say that they they end up kind of uh, you know moving up moving off and starting life on life on their own a distance away. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I've definitely yeah they often do yeah they often do they'll yeah they'll they'll often disperse. Yep. Yeah, and I've I've noticed that with turkeys a lot of times, and I've I've been in situations where. I'll see 10 or 12 or 14 uh, jakes on a property and like the person I'm hunting with will be like, Oh gosh, I can't wait for next year. But uh, we've noticed over the years that it, it does never, it, it, it does never equate equate to, you know, us seeing those as, as Tom's or anything like that. Like it's, it's kind of interesting how that happened. Yeah. No, I've seen the same too. You know, it's like, Oh man, we're in good shape. I got 15 jakes walking around. It's like, well, next year, I'm not going to see 15 times and sure enough, it's okay. I'm not seeing 15 times. My neighbors have, have gotten some of those birds. Yeah. Yeah. We, we hunted a property, um, that we actually have, have called the, the Jake farm or the Jake nursery, because it seems like every year <laughs> there's a million Jakes out there and we keep thinking, or at least in the beginning, we kept thinking, Oh man, next year's going to be great. And it always seems like, there's a majority of jakes there and typically 10 to 15 jakes. And for whatever reason, maybe there'll be one to three mature toms and it's the same every year. Pretty consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Now that makes sense based on what we know. So is there a, would it be uh, back, back to what, what we can do as hunters to help the population? So from a harvest standpoint, it sounds like we kind of know what to do, but what about, is there other things that we can do? I mean, and obviously habitat enhan- enhancement, but that's a little more difficult for a lot of us. But, you know, like I grew up trapping um, and I know a lot of people that did. Is, is, there, um, is there, should we be hunting, you know, coyotes or trapping raccoons or skunks or what, what? Is there anything that we could do uh, that would that would help? I know our customers are go, are going to want to know that. Yeah, I mean, obviously there there's things that we can tackle whether we're small private landowners or whether we don't own land and we just have the ability to to in, you know uh, influence, if you will, other pieces of property. You know, when I'm I, I was asked at some point sometime recently um i was asked well you know what would somebody that that has no private land that doesn't own land that doesn't hunt private land what can they do to influence turkey populations in their state and my answer was well first thing you can keep buying that license you can keep buying that hunting license and you can keep doing that activity that you cherish because your willingness to put resources into that state coffer is what's driving the economic engine that allows us to do what we do. That's the first thing. The second thing would be identify any piece of property anywhere, a family member, a friend, someone that owns an acre, a thousand acres, whatever it is, and try to have some impact on the way that they manage that property. Maybe you could take the science to them and help them do a better job at managing their hay cutting. Real hot topic this time of year in the deep south. Uh, Get a question yesterday about, um, we're about to cut our hay. 
Should we wait a few weeks? Yes. Yes. You need to wait until June the 1st. Okay, we can do that. Well, I don't know that I just saved a turkey nest, but there's a chance that I did, um, knowing this property. Um, maybe you could help them in, in some other way, whether it's they're about to have some logging done and you could get you know, a friend that, that has a friend of a friend that's a forester that could come in and, and help them do a better job of understanding how they're going to, to manage their timber, whatever it is, that, that would be another step. If you do have access to private property and you want to do something to help, understand that whatever you do, you need to have it predicated on around a habitat ethic or a habitat mandate. And what I mean by that is if you want to go trap raccoons or, or trap a coyote or do whatever it is to your predator community, then take the same amount of time and effort and focus it on trying to improve habitat as well. Um, because in the absence of, of other things on the landscape to improve the landscape for the bird, trapping a few predators here and there is not going to make an impact. Um, I'm certainly, I don't discourage people from doing it. In fact, trapping is fun and it's, it's, it's addictive and mm -hmm. it teaches a, a really keen sense of, of place. And it teaches you to pay attention to details, you know, cause you're trying to put an animal's foot on a square inch or two square inches of the earth. That, that's hard to do. So it, yeah, it teaches you patience and it teaches you attention to detail and it's a lot of fun. So go do it. Um, but just be realistic and understand that, that depending on how intensive you are with it, how repeated you are it, with it, you know, do you do it every year? Do you do it right before nesting season? Do you take a big swing at it? Do you focus on one animal or multiple species or whatever it is? you know, ask yourself those questions and then be realistic in what you expect. Um, but go forth and, and try it, man. I, I everybody that asked me about trapping, I'm like, if you know a local trapper, go spend some time with them. Um, you're going to find a person that's as wood savvy as anybody that's ever walked the earth because they see things so differently than you and I do. And I've trapped a lot in my life. And I've spent time around some really good trappers and they're just different people. They think differently. They see things differently and they have a remarkable sense, uh, a, a, an attention to detail, if you will. They just see things incredibly detailed. And I enjoy spending time around people that are like that, that see the world differently. So go find a local trapper, contact your local trapping association or your state trapping association. And I'll promise you, they can put you in contact with somebody in your local area that traps as a hobby and sometimes, you know, as a fanatic, like we are turkey hunters, and call that person and see if they don't mind you spending time with them. And I suspect you're going to see that, they, that they'd that love to have company. They would love to to be able to talk to you about their passion and help you learn things that would help you be a better trapper. That makes your learning curve, you know, a lot less. It makes you more successful right out of the box. Then trapping becomes even even more fun. So that that's what I would encourage you to do if, if you're considering trapping and don't have the experience. 
Yeah, that's great. Great advice. Yeah, and trapping is trapping knowledge helps you with everything else with deer hunting and setting tree stands and 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 uh, waterfowl hunting and everything oh yeah yeah definitely uh well brad do you have any questions this is your last chance to talk to mike chamberlain like with, oh man with- i have so <laughs> many questions still um i i'm hoping you've been just a a, a tremendous uh pleasure to have on on the podcast here mike and I'm really hoping because I do have so many everything from bird ranges, turkey diet, habitat management still. Um, it, it, we're not going to be able to get around to all of it, but maybe, just maybe, w- would we be able to talk you into coming on down the road again? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't mean to put you on the spot there, but uh, otherwise, I, <laughs> no, no, I, no. I'm afraid no, this no, is going to turn into a really long episode. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, nobody wants to hear me ramble on that long. So, yeah, I'm more oh, yeah. than happy to join you again. Oh, that's that's great. Yeah, and we've got it rec- recorded that he said yes, Brad. So we can <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's good. Yeah. That's great. Okay, well, listen, you, uh, we appreciate your time so much, and we know that your time is valuable and uh, you're in demand and stuff. And I, I can speak for all of our listeners, and I can just tell you that we just we just appreciate it so much, and it's been. Uh, just, just an awesome learning experience, and I, I, I'm ready to implement a lot of the stuff that I've learned today. Well, it's, it was good to join you. Not a problem. And, and for any of our listeners that want to glean even more information um, from, from you, Mike, um, I, I just started following you at Wild Turkey Doc on on Instagram. I noticed you have a Twitter account as well at Wild Turkey Doc. I'm not familiar with Twitter, but. Um, I have been following you in the last few days on Instagram and I've just been blown away by all of your knowledge that you've shared and I'm going to continue um, to, to follow you there. So check Mike Chamberlain out at Wild Turkey Doc on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and again, Mike, yep. thanks so much yep. for joining us. Not a problem, guys. Good to join you. All right. Take care, Mike. Yep. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of DSD Hunting Podcast. Um, we'd really appreciate you helping us grow this podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or even just share on social media. Uh, that goes a long ways. We'd love the chance to keep bringing fresh content. So if you don't already, follow us, Dave Smith Decoys, on Instagram and Facebook for updates on new episodes. We'll have opportunities for customers to get involved too with the conversation and ask questions. So keep an eye out every Friday for new episodes. And thank you so much for all your support and for listening to us.